Some time ago, two fast friends again found themselves in a pub, lamenting the decay of the culture. On many things they disagreed, as men of deep thought often do. On this one thing, however, they were aligned like fish and chips. In that age, as in any, even as people were no longer tormented by the teachings of philosophy and theology and free of unwieldy objective thought, these friends knew that the soul was created to prefer the light of truth and beauty, an undeniable point of reference and an immutable connection to the Creator Himself. And as such, Jack and Tullers agreed that the only way to capture their market, to convey an eternal message to the secular unchurched populace, was through beauty. The means by which they would take the culture back to its true state would be some of the Earth's greatest works of literature. Today we know those two plotters as C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, high-level strategists most assuredly, evangelists whose brilliant works have captured hearts and souls without even as much as an amen. Theirs is a case study of God's powerful workaround to men's unwitting tinkering with the master's machinery. But how did Tolkien know? How was he able to speak so directly to so many hearts from a time and place far removed from this? Joseph Pierce is fond of saying that to truly understand a book, you must know the author. Today we hope to do just that. Joseph Pierce is a prolific biographer beginning with Tolkien and working in high-speed reverse to Shakespeare. Dozens of books, each more brilliant than the last. Joseph, first welcome. It's great to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to explore Tolkien, but before we jump in, help us understand the context of this biographer. What do we need to know about your time and place, and how does it inform your writing? Well, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith, and it was largely due to the influence of these writers that we're talking about, Tolkien and Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, who was a major influence upon both Tolkien and Lewis. So I'm very aware of the power of uh, these writers to bring people to goodness, truth, and beauty, and of course to the person who is goodness, truth, and beauty, Jesus Christ. And so being aware of that power, I've made it, if you like, my mission to make that power known to, to other people. So I've written uh, a biography of Chesterton, I've written three books on Tolkien and two books on C.S. Lewis. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are everywhere. Books, movies, Dungeon and Dragons, medieval themed fantasy novels, chat boards, even college courses. The market can't get enough. The latest evidence on September 2nd, Amazon Prime will premiere its version of The Lord of the Rings. In 1997, respondents to a nationwide poll in the UK chose it as the greatest novel of the 20th century, sending the official literary establishment into a tailspin. Why is Tolkien's work so compelling? Well, it has a great deal of depth uh, in terms of, well, the depth of the man himself, the, the depth of his Catholic faith. Uh, and Tolkien says, and I'm quoting him word for word here, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously at first, consciously in the revision. Uh, but on top of that, he was a linguist. He was a philologist at Oxford University, and the, the work has linguistic depth as well. He actually uh, began not with the story, but with the language. He invented uh, the Elvish languages, and then he wanted to have people speak it. 
So how do you have people speak the languages you've invented? Well, you create stories for them. And that was how the Middle Earth was born and the stories of Middle Earth were born. So it has linguistic depth. It has theological depth. Uh, it has historical depth. Um, Tolkien has said is a man deeply rooted uh, in, in uh, medieval times and, and classical times. He knows his history. He knows his great books. He knows his languages and he knows his faith. You put all that together, you've got a winning combination. In The Lord of the Rings, the One Ring tempts the wearer to become addicted to power and thus destroyed physically and spiritually. Characters differ in how susceptible they are to the ring's glamour of evil. What makes different characters resist the lure of the One Ring? And why do certain characters succumb? Well, it's all to do with that, with virtue. It's all ultimately to do with humility or its absence. Of course, the definition of pride is the absence of humility. And uh, that's because the ring is actually symbolizes sin itself. The ring is synonymous with sin. So to very, very briefly to, to explain that, uh, that Tolkien chooses to have the ring destroyed on March the 25th. Now, March the 25th, of course, is the date of the Annunciation, the date on which the word becomes flesh. Uh, the date in which God becomes man. It's also, according to the early church and the medieval church, and as I've just said, Tolkien was rooted, so he knows these histories, that the early church believed that the historical date of the crucifixion was also March the 25th. So this is a, a, probably the most significant single date on the calendar, because life begins, of course, at conception and not at birth, so that the, God becomes man on March the 25th. He also dies for man on March the 25th. What is destroyed on March the 25th, taken together with the resurrection, is sin, the power of sin. Uh, what is uh, original sin? It's the one sin to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. What is the ring? The one ring to rule them all and in the dark darkness bind them. The one ring and the one sin or one thing, which is sin itself. So the answer to the question is, if the more that somebody has humility, the more they have resistance through grace to, uh, to, the, to the ring's power. The more they allow themselves to succumb to the absence of humility, to pride, the more they fall under the ring's power. The Lord of the Rings, it might be said, seems more like a myth than a 19th or 20th century novel. Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis said, the value of myth is that it takes all the things you know and restores them to the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. How does Tolkien lift the veil of familiarity for us? Well, you're, you're completely correct. Of course, uh, C.S. Lewis is completely correct in his discussion of the power of myth in general and the power of, um, of uh, uh, Tolkien's myth in particular. Um, the myth we need to understand, you know, the modern understanding of the word myth, because we live in a philosophically materialistic and atheist age, uh, is that a myth is a lie, you know, something which is not factually true. But as an actual fact, deeper, stronger, more penetrative understanding of the meaning of the word myth is merely the power of story itself. Uh, and our own lives are a life story. History is, his, his, is a story. In fact, ultimately, providentially, history is his story. So our other stories reflect aspects of this story-like uh, reality in which we find ourselves. So Tolkien, uh, uh, true myth, as as C.S. Lewis, as G.K. Chesterton says in Orthodoxy, that true myth uh, doesn't show us the way things are, it shows us the way they should be. Um, uh, and, you know, there's that desirability uh, to, for, for something which is true. 
uh, is something which transcends the false, the falsity which we see and the lies which we see in reality. We have to be aware of the lies and the power of the lies and the power of the lie. Um, but we, we can't defeat the power of the lie without the power of truth. And truth is a transcendental, which, which uh, transcends mere fact, which is why myth is a, a good means of conveying it. Well said. Tolkien's work takes us right up to the edge of Christian symbolism, but it's never obvious. This may be somewhat lost on those reading for the excitement. What symbolism is most resonant for you, and do you believe it breaks through cultural ignorance? Yes, to answer the latter part of your question first, the thing about The Lord of the Rings is it gets past those watchful dragons. And a part of Tolkien's and Lewis's strategy was that the modern world is so hostile to religious faith in general and Christianity in particular, that if, if they sniff any element of Christ in a story, uh, they will refuse to read it and, and, and will uh, blackball it, will, will, will attempt to, 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 uh, to uh, obstruct it. So you have to get past those watchful dragons. And that's what Tolkien does in The Lord of the Rings. There's no overt mention of Christ or, or the church. But as I've said, and as he said, it's fundamentally religious and Catholic, but in a subsumed sense, in its philosophy, in its subsumed, immersed theology, and its, in its morality, in its ethics. Um, and the key thing is that everybody that reads The Lord of the Rings will be moved in the right direction. In other words, they'll be moved Christwards. Now, if you're an atheist, uh, who's a long way from conversion, it's very unlikely you're going to read The Lord of the Rings and have an instantaneous conversion experience. But you'll be moved closer to Christ and the things of Christ. And from that closer position, you'll be more likely to read things you wouldn't have read before you reached that position. So in other words, he's moving everybody in the right direction. Uh, and, and that's the real power of it. Nobody reads The Lord of the Rings. Nobody reads The Lord of the Rings without me being moved towards Christ. We have to understand, I mean, the, the most famous question or one of the most famous questions ever asked is quid est veritas? Now, Pontius Pilate's question, what is truth? And the, the key thing, there's two ways of answering. It's not a question of answering the, the answer to the question I'm going to give in a moment. But the, the, the first thing, in order to be able to answer it, is the way that we ask it. And most people in the modern world say, say quid est veritas? What is truth? As if it's something which either doesn't exist or I make it up or it's unknowable. Uh, if you ask the question that way, quid est veritas, then you're never going to get the answer. So you have to ask the question, quid est veritas, what is truth? And, and that answer has been given to us by Jesus Christ himself in, in the gospel, not in direct answer to the Pilate's question to him, but elsewhere to his disciples. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. So the point is that the, the, the way uh, and the truth and the life that we find in the Lord of the Rings, as it is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, is the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and Christ, if you like, is speaking surreptitiously because, you know, you know very well, if you know, if a Jehovah's Witness knocks at your door and you don't want to, to have anything to do with their, their religion, you just close the door on them politely, I hope, the charity, but you, you don't have the conversation. So that, that's true of the, of the modern secular world. It doesn't want the conversation. So somehow or other you have to introduce the conversation in a manner that's going to allow them to, to listen uh, with, with ears open and eyes open rather than with ears shut and eyes shut. And the Lord of the Rings, in subsuming the way, the truth and the life of Christ within the very fabric of the story, enables that to happen. 
Christianity is a quest. We're pilgrims on a journey of faith. How do the struggles of the four main characters in Lord of the Rings convey the Christian journey? Well, the first thing, of course, is the whole structure of both the Lord of the Rings and the, and the Hobbit is a journey. I mean, and Tolkien, again, as Christian and as a medievalist, understands the three classic understandings of who we are. Not modern Enlightenment understandings, such as Homo sapiens, you know, the wise man. We, we, anybody who knows anything about human history knows that wisdom is not our defining characteristic. So that's not a very, that's a dumb label. Uh, and even a more recent one is Homo economicus. That we're basically only here as cogs in the economy. Our only purpose is to produce wealth and consume it. We have no other purpose except to be servants of the economy. That's also not what we are. The old understanding is the Greek word anthropos, he who turns up in wonder, uh, homo viator, pilgrim man or man on a quest, and homo superbus, proud man, the man who refuses the quest because he wants to do his own thing. And what we see in, in, in the uh, Lord of the Rings is those three aspects of who we are fighting out uh, for supremacy. So. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says very famously, the battle between good and evil takes place in each individual heart. That battle between good and evil is the battle between the homo viator, we're called to be, and the homo superbus, we're tempted to be. That struggle takes place in each one of us, and therefore it takes place uh, on a macro level in human society. So we see in the Lord of the Rings that, um, that the, the characters are called to take the quest, to shoulder the burden, to take the ring, to, to be part of the fellowship, to face the dragons, to defeat the dragons, to face the enemies, to go on the journey. So that's homo viator. But there's also the temptation to, well, I don't know, this is dangerous, uh, it's tiring, it's not allowing me to do what I want to do. So there's also this other aspect of, of resistance to the call of the quest. And then Anthropos, he who looks up in wonder, and there are several examples of this in the story, but one of my favorites is Samwise Gamgee, in one of the darkest moments of the story, when it looks as if evil has triumphed, he looks up and all through the murkiness of Mordor, he sees there's still a glimmer of the light of the sun. And he says, above all shadows rides the sun. And of course, in order to see that, in order to know that, we have to look up. And I sometimes say that Anthropos uh, is the difference between us, uh, uh, who, are, who are Anthropos, and the rest of the creatures who aren't, is that the animal grazes, but man gazes. We're meant to look up and to wonder at the goodness, truth, and beauty of the cosmos. When we do that, we see that there's a light and a goodness and a truth and a beauty that transcends all darkness and all evil. Joseph Pierce, what a great pleasure. I hope we can have you back again, although we could spend a year talking and never cover your full body of work and thought. Well, it's been a joy and a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and I'll be very open to coming back again should you want me to. Thank you. We're not alone. The ebb and flow of culture has vexed generations for millions of years. Even still, the primacy of truth and beauty continues to breathe life into our weary souls. What is truth? Asked Pontius Pilate as he washed his hands. We may live in a secular power-hungry world bound by uncatholic principles, but we remain creatures of body and soul and those souls will forever be drawn toward the light and power of beauty. I'm Linda Hoffman. We're glad you joined us today. Look for our next episode of Fear Not.
This has been a Chantworks production. Please visit us online at chantworks.com.